it certainly didn't hurt that his daddy was the king. Nor did it hurt that his personal tutor was not only a well-known philosopher, but he was a really smart guy by the name of Aristotle. At 16 years of age, while his dad was away, you know, doing war kinds of things, this young man was responsible for the kingdom back home. And he had to make some military decisions. And at 16 years of age, he proved himself to be wise, courageous, and heroic in those military decisions that Alexander had to make, he won the respect of the army. When he was but 20 years of age, his father was assassinated, and the heir apparent was now king of Macedonia. Alexander swiftly asserted his authority, conquering and uniting the Greek city-states, it was then that his lust for conquest got the best of him. And he went out as a, a, a marauding army conquering the Middle East and Egypt and Babylon and Persia, entering into India, and over the course of just a little bit more than a decade, the empire of Alexander went from Punjab, India, to Gibraltar, a span of 4,500 miles by air. Just to give you some perspective, Seattle to Miami is 2,700 miles by air. Alexander was not just a conqueror. He was a scientist. He was a political organizer. He was a cultural missionary. It was his purpose to make the Greek language, the Greek culture, the Greek life, the Greek religion ubiquitous. He wanted it everywhere, and it worked. Greek became the lingua franca of all of that region. There were, uh, by, by some historians count, 13 cities that he humbly named after himself. Most notably, Alexandria, Egypt. Everywhere you went in that part of the world, you found Alexander's name and the Greek culture. The Roman Empire benefited from Alexander's labors and his lingering legacy. And God used all of that to make it possible for the gospel message, God's good news to be spread rapidly in the first century. The contrast between 
Jesus and Alexander the Great is, 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 it is mind-boggling. It is astonishing. While he was in um, Babylon, Alexander the Great uh, unexpectedly fell ill. Ten days later, he was dead. At 33 years of age, Jesus died at 33 years of age. Charles Ross Weed contrasted the Macedonian king with Jesus, a new kind of king, in a poem that he titled Christ and Alexander. Jesus and Alexander died at 33. One died in Babylon and one on Calvary. One gained all for self, and one himself he gave. One conquered every throne, the other every grave. When died the Greek, forever fell his throne of swords, but Jesus died to live forever, Lord of lords. Jesus and Alexander died at 33. The Greek made all men slaves. The Jew made all men free. One built a throne on blood. The other built on love. The one was born of earth. The other from above. One won all this earth to lose all earth and heaven. The other gave up all that all to him be given. Greek forever died, the Jew forever lives. He loses all who gets and wins all things who gives. Conquest by sword, conquest by sacrifice. Contrary to what we might expect, Alexander did not bring life. And Jesus, though he died, did. The text of Scripture before us this morning in John chapter 12, we find a, a few men who are the uh, beneficiaries, the, uh, the descendants of Alexander the Great. Not necessarily physically, we don't know their physical heritage, but we know that they were Greeks. They came from that lineage. And they came knocking on the door, looking for Jesus. They wanted something more. John chapter 12, beginning at verse 20. Follow along with me, please. Now, there were some Greeks among those who were going up to worship at the feast. These then came to Philip, who was from Bethsaida of Galilee, and began to ask him, saying, Sir, we wish to see Jesus. Philip came and told Andrew, and Andrew and Philip came and told Jesus. And Jesus answered them, saying, 
the hour has come for the Son of Man to be glorified. Truly, truly, I say to you, unless a grain of wheat falls into the earth and dies, it remains alone. But if it dies, it bears much fruit. He who loves his life loses it. And he who hates his life in this world will keep it to life eternal. If anyone serves me, he must follow me. And where I am, there my servant will be also. If anyone serves me, the Father will honor him. This morning I have organized my message taken from the text of our scripture in these five points. The hour comes, the living dies, the dying lives, the serving follows, and the honor comes. Point number one. As we um, would open any text of scripture, we, we must look at the context. To fail to do so to, to, to um, uh, not appreciate what comes in front or what follows, um, not just in a particular chapter or in a particular paragraph, maybe in the context of the whole Bible or, or the setting in which it is written. If we fail to do that, we, we miss a great deal and we are at risk of losing some very important things that God would have us note and learn from. Now I want you to notice here in John chapter 12, as we kind of take a step back and look at the, the entirety of this chapter, you will remember that at the beginning of this chapter, on the Sabbath, Prior to Jesus' ex execution, Mary of Bethany comes to her Lord with an alabaster vase of perfume. She breaks it open. She pours it on his head, on his body, on his feet. She wipes the excess with her hair. And Jesus uh, makes mention that she is anointing his body for burial. Because he knows that he is days within his own death. The following day, what we call Palm Sunday, is what we looked at last week, beginning in verse 12 of chapter 12. Now I want you to notice there, chapter 12, verse 12, is Jesus' entry into Jerusalem. Chapter 13 begins with the account of the Last Supper. This is the Passover meal. The triumphal entry was on the first day of Jesus' Passion Week, as we are, 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 are known to call it. Uh, this was uh, the, the last days of his life prior to the Passover meal on Thursday evening, he was 
arrested that night, and he was placed on the cross the next morning, Friday morning. So here in chapter 12, we have all of this compressed uh, detail regarding the last week of Jesus' life. After this event on Sunday, Palm Sunday, that concludes in verse 19, we have just verses 20 through 50 in John chapter 12 that detail events, conversations that took place in Jesus' life on this last week of his life. All right, hang on to that thought and turn back with me to Matthew's Gospel, chapter 21. The beginning of Matthew chapter 21 is Matthew's account of the triumphal entry. The beginning of that week, the Passion Week, the last week of Jesus' earthly life. After the triumphal entry, at the beginning of chapter 21, we have the rest of chapter 21. And then we have chapter 22. And then we have chapter 23. And then then chapter 24, in case you're having a hard time counting. And then chapter 25. Followed by chapter 26, where finally, in the middle of that chapter, we find Jesus celebrating the Passover with his men. John does not give us all of the detail that Matthew or the other synoptic writers, Mark and Luke, give us. John gives us only a very small portion of what takes place that week. He has his reasons for doing so. The text before us this morning in John 12, beginning of verse 20, we just read those verses. This particular event of these Greek men approaching Jesus, wanting to talk with him, is not mentioned by the other gospel writers. John includes it here for a particular reason, and we find it in the context, the immediate context of John chapter 12. You remember last week we concluded with a discussion of verse 19, where the Pharisees, one of the the leading religious groups in that day, were arguing between themselves. Uh, There were some among the Pharisees who had a rather laissez-faire, let's wait and see how this all plays out kind of attitude, and there were others among the Pharisees who had a very... um, an aggressive, assertive view on how they should take care of Jesus. Specifically, how they're going to take Jesus out of the picture. Some of the Pharisees noted to their comrades, Look, the world has gone after him. Now, as I explained last week, John loves using the word world when it comes to the work of Christ. Chapter 3, God loves the world. Chapter 4 in John's Gospel, 
He is the Savior of the world. We looked at 1 John chapter 2, verse 2, last week, where we, we find that um, John says he is the propitiation for the world. That is, he satisfies the justice of God. Now, when John consistently uses the word world in this sense, he is not saying that God loves the world, saves the world, propitiates the world for every single person without exception. He's not saying that. We could say that John uses the word world to say that God loves and saves and propitiates for all people in the world without distinction. And here we would be spot on accurate with John's understanding of the world. You go back to chapter 12, verse 19, when some of the Pharisees were complaining, the world has gone after him. They were using the word world in that sense in, uh, um, um, in, a, in an exaggerated way. Uh, everybody has gone after Jesus. Well, not every single person, but it seemed to them, as they quite probably were standing in the temple area, and from the temple area, you can look up on the Mount of Olives. The top of the Mount of Olives is 300 feet higher than the temple area. And they saw as Jesus was coming down the temple area, Uh, down from uh, the Mount of Olives, he had people behind him. A lot of those people were from Bethany. He had people in front of him. Those were a lot of the people from Jerusalem were going up to see him. There were people everywhere around Jesus. So it is within the realm of possibility that when when the the Pharisees say the, the world has gone after him, that's what they're looking at. They are seeing a mass of humanity their fellow countrymen who were following after Jesus. And honestly, that made them very nervous. nervous, Because their status quo money flow was in jeopardy. They didn't like that. So now John says that there were some Greeks among those who were going up to worship at the feast. Now, now he, he says that these, these Greeks were there in Jerusalem to worship. Well, they would have been proselytes, but they would not have been Jews. They wouldn't have made themselves Jews. Let me explain that. proselyte. Um, Think of uh, the eunuch in Acts chapter 8 or the Roman centurion Cornelius in Acts chapter 10. They were sometimes what we call God-fearers. They they loved the God of the Old Testament. Uh, They submitted themselves to Mosaic law with this exception. They had not been circumcised. So a Jew could not call this kind of a convert a Jew because they didn't wear the sign of the Mosaic Covenant. 
circumcision. These people hadn't been circumcised. So they were still considered Gentiles. They were in Jerusalem. So so why does John include these people here? Because of verse 19. The Pharisees said, the world has gone after him as a statement of complaint. Because their status quo money flow was in jeopardy. But the Holy Spirit used that phrase to say that the world, that is, Jews and Gentiles, were coming to Jesus. Very next verse, here's some Greeks, Gentiles, they're coming to Jesus. They're coming to worship. Well, they came and they uh, saw Philip. Now, it's interesting that John notes again that Philip is from Bethsaida of Galilee. Why is that? Well, these Greeks could have been from, wow, some city thousand or two thousand miles away. But they could also have been people that could have walked to Jerusalem in one day, maybe two days. There were a group of cities called the Decapolis on the east side, east and southeast side of uh, the Sea of Galilee. And the city of Bethsaida, from which Philip is from, was also on the east side, the northeast side of the Sea of Galilee. So why is it, how is it that these these Greeks came upon Philip? Well, maybe they saw that the the kind of ride that uh, Philip came to the temple that morning. They probably had a license plate holder that said, um, um, Bethsaida Auto Group, no, uh, Bethsaida Camel Group or Bethsaida Donkey Group. Um, Maybe they knew that he was uh, one of their locals. They found Philip and they spoke to him. Why didn't they just speak to Jesus? Let me explain the temple area. Let, let, me, let me draw you a picture here, using my words in my hands. The temple area was like a series of concentric circles. As you went closer to the center, there was more and more restriction of who could be there. For example, the very center, the very heart of the temple the temple proper, the building, the structure. At the very heart of it was the holiest place called the most holy place. It was in that room that only the high priest could go and that only once a year. 
next concentric circle going out was the rest of the temple proper called the the holy place this is where the 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 burnt um or the uh the um uh, altar of incense was this is where the uh uh the the showbread was priests could go in and um offer incense for example now um right outside that was where the the um uh, burnt offerings were made and only priests levitical priests were able to go in this area stepping away from that was the area where jewish men could could go and they would be the ones bringing the animals to the priests and they would be sacrificing the animals there um, uh, right next to the, the the temple proper uh, w- one step out is the court of women. Now, all Jewish people could go in this area, and the men, even the priests, had to traverse through the court of women in order to get into another part of the temple area. No Gentiles were allowed in any of the area that I have described so far, um, but there was the court of the Gentiles where proselytes like Cornelius, like these Greek men who obviously loved the Lord, they came to worship, that's where they could come. It was in the court of the Gentiles that Jesus found the money changers. Twice in Jesus' ministry, at the beginning of his ministry and during the last week of his earthly life, probably on Monday of that particular week, Jesus cleansed the temple. The, uh, uh, the, the, uh, the Gentiles, these Greek men, um, would have had access to the court of the Gentiles. Uh, they would have seen, and everyone knew about it, they, they would have seen the sign leading into the court of women that said, the wall of... of, of, of um, 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 the wall of, of hostility. Um, when you have a, a, an explosion of all your notes here, you're not sure where you are anymore. Um, don't want those guys. Um, the, the, uh, the, the, the dividing, here it is. The dividing wall of hostility is how the sign read. Any Gentile passing that sign, stepping into the court of women, reserved for Jews alone, would give up their life. They would be executed. It was that serious. So it's possible that these Greeks saw something in Philip that identified him as a local. And they felt comfortable asking him about Jesus' whereabouts. It's also possible that from the court of the Gentiles, these men saw Jesus in a restricted area where they could not traverse. 
And they saw G- Philip coming from Jesus and said, hey, um, excuse us, we would like to talk with Jesus. Can you arrange that, please? He would need to come to us, we understand. Now, um, if this particular incident took place after Jesus cleansed the temple, that it, it probably would have happened, this conversation would have happened on, on Monday of the Passion Week. We don't have any other um, uh, time markers to pinpoint it exactly. But if it took place after Jesus cleansed the temple, we know from Mark's Gospel, chapter 11, that, that Jesus said these words. My house shall be called a house of prayer for all the nations. It may be that those Greeks not only saw Jesus cleanse the temple, but heard him say those words, knowing that they were outsiders, and hearing Jesus say, this place is to be for all the nations, they may have said to themselves, we need to find out a little bit more about this. They approached Philip and said, we, we would like to, to, to meet with Jesus if that's possible. Verse 22, so Philip came, told Andrew, Andrew and Philip came, told Jesus. And that's the last we hear of these Greek men. That's the last we hear of, of anything related to their request. It's done. And, and the words that Jesus says that are recorded here don't seem to address anything uh, that would maybe satisfy the curiosity of these men or their interest in talking to Jesus. But what Jesus says, says everything about who comes to him, be it a Jew or a Greek. These words of Jesus give us the foundations of the faith. This, this is what discipleship is all about. And Jesus begins this way, verse 23. The hour has come for the Son of Man to be glorified. Now what does Jesus mean? What is this hour that he's talking about? Well, an hour is literally a, a, rather, a rather brief period of time. And he, he's using it not in a literal sense, but in a figurative sense to say that his time on earth is quickly coming to a close. It's as though Jesus is saying, it's 11 o'clock, and midnight is almost at hand. He's talking about this last week of his passion that is going to culminate in his death, 
his burial, his resurrection. And then we'll, all, all of it will conclude with his ascension in heaven some days after his resurrection. The hour has come. Now previously, uh, we, we read this in a handful of places in John's Gospel, uh, starting way back in chapter 2. Jesus is wont to say, my hour, this is chapter 2, verse 4, my hour has not yet come. And he continues to remind his disciples, nope, it's not time. The hour is not here. Now, everything changes. And Jesus declares boldly, the hour has come. Specifically, the hour whereby he will be glorified. Now we know from our study through John's Gospel, Jesus did nothing except the, the Father directed him, whether it be by deed or by word. Jesus did only as the Father bid him to do. He said only those things which the Father instructed him to say. His mission was to come, live a perfect life, die the most horrible of deaths, and then to rise again. Concluded with his ascension, his ascension and his enthronement. For his obedience in this whole mission, Jesus knew that glory awaited him. But he, it wasn't, um, wasn't that he was interested in glorifying himself. He was focused exclusively on glorifying the Father and being obedient to the Father. But he also knew that in that obedience, he would be glorified by the Father. All of this was to take place in the hour which is now at hand. We celebrate that hour ourselves each year in, uh, in, uh, the, uh, at, the, at the high point of, of the church's calendar. The high point of the church's calendar is, is not Christmas. And it's not Easter. The high point is Good Friday. The apex for Christians is the nadir for Jesus. Our high point is his low point. Our highest point is his lowest point. We call it good because of what we receive. But it was a horrible death that Jesus endured. All of it, however, was an act of obedience on Jesus' part. He loved the Father, obeyed the Father, did as the Father instructed him to do, perfectly so. He walked with the Lord. Now, the, the, uh, the immediate context here is, is, is important to note. There were these Greeks, these Greek men 
who came looking for Jesus. Jesus says, as they come, ask for him. He says, now, my hour has come. This is significant for this reason. Repeatedly, when Jesus was uh, doing his ministry and even instructing his disciples, he instructed them to reach out to, to their fellow countrymen, to Jews. It was not until um, after the resurrection that Jesus turned them loose and said, okay, guys, now, not just Jews, but Gentiles also. In the book of Romans, chapter 1, verse 16, we read this. Paul writes, I, I am not ashamed of the gospel. It is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first, and then to the Gentile. Back in John chapter 12, the hour has come. Now it's Gentile time also. Jesus is giving us a, a, a hint, a preview of what is to take place in his passion, his death, his burial, his resurrection. It is going to benefit the Jew first, but also the Gentile. Second page of your notes, point number two. Jesus begins verse 24 with, with, that, um, with that ubiquitous saying, uh, truly, truly, amen, amen, uh, verily, verily. Take out your pen and paper, gentlemen, and take notes. This is muy importante. You need this information. Truly, truly, Jesus says. Unless a grain of wheat falls into the earth and dies, it remains alone. But if it dies, it bears much fruit. Now there's no less than three meanings wrapped up in this verse. Now I want to be careful saying something like that in the way that I just said it, because it, 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 it might lead you to think that I'm going to be going off on a rabbit trail and finding some kind of esoteric meaning in what Jesus is saying. No, Jesus is giving us um, a, a, a literal meaning. There's the first one. And then a meaning about himself and his ministry. That's the second meaning. And then a, a, a meaning that has to do with the lives of his disciples, those who would follow him. And that's the third. The, the literal meaning something that we, we, we all know is that if you leave the zucchini seed in the packet or you leave it on the table, it remains alone. Pretty profound, huh? You don't have to be a gardener to know that. You don't even have to know somebody who's a gardener to know that. 
You take a seed, you put it on the table, if you leave it there, it's not going to do a thing. It's not going to grow you any more zucchinis. You've got to put that seed in the dirt. What happens if you put it in the dirt? The seed dies. The seed rots. Oh, but when it does, you're going to have so many zucchini that when your friends see you coming, they might not want to be your friends anymore because they know you're just going to give them more zucchini. A seed that is pushed into the dirt dies. And when it dies, it produces much fruit. Well, that's the literal meaning. He draws from the agricultural community in which he lives. Um, anybody in an agrarian society, even those of us who are not, we understand that principle. Now, this is what Jesus meant. This, this is meaning number two, where, where he's, he's using this literal um, understanding in a figurative way. He's saying he has to go into the dirt. He has to be pushed down into the dirt. He has to die. What would happen? What would happen if Jesus came and he, he, he lived a wonderful life and, and then all of a sudden he was just gone? Well, he, he would have maybe left us a wonderful example of how to live. And he would have provided preachers like me with, with lots of wonderful sermon material. But he would have remained alone. And you and I, we would have no hope of eternal life. Jesus By the way that God orchestrated the world, Jesus had to come and die, and in so doing, those who believe in him are the fruit of his work. Now, the third meaning wrapped up in this. Uh, illustration in verse 24 has to do with us as his disciples and that third meaning is explained a little more fully in verse 25 it's point number three the dying lives look at verse 25 with me he who loves his life loses it and he who hates his life in this world will keep it to eternal life. All right, there's some um, paradoxical, conundrum-like, puzzle-like statements that are worthy of a good deal of mental energy. To love is to lose. To hate is to gain. Jesus is using 
the words love and hatred here in verse 25. And in our day and age, those words are twisted and misunderstood to a significant level. For example, the word hate. We, we have in, in recent years been, been bombarded with uh, the, the, idol, the, the idea of hate crimes. Well, they have, um, um, they, they have a, uh, an ideological and, and political bent to, uh, there is a, an ideological and a, a political uh, bent to, to that phrase, um, uh, a hate crime. But think about it with me. Um, all, almost all, maybe 99.999% of all crimes are hate crimes. It's always been that way. To, to not like what a person has said or what they possess or uh, who they are or um, to, to take something from them or to uh, deny them the use of something, for example, uh, or, or to shackle them in some way. That's hatred. And, and that kind of crime has been with us since Cain versus Abel. There's always been that desire to, 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 to take, take away from, whether that be somebody's life, somebody's possession, somebody's reputation. And, and to love. Our, our understanding of of love is so fickle and flip-floppy. We, we like it. Oh, we say we love it. Oh, we prefer it. Oh, we say we love it. Oh. What does that mean, really? Well, when Jesus uses these words, hatred and love, he fills them with particular content. If you look with me at hmm, Luke chapter 16, Luke chapter 14. Ah, no, just let me read it. Don't, don't turn your Bibles there. You'll get, you'll get distracted. Luke chapter 14, verse 26. Listen. If anyone comes to me, Jesus says, and does not hate his own father and mother and wife and children and brothers and sisters, yes, even his own life, he cannot be my disciple. I have to be a hater in order to be a disciple of Jesus. Careful, please put that in context. Hatred here, in the words of Jesus, is the exact opposite of love. Listen to what he says in the Sermon on the Mount, chapter 6. Matthew 6. No one can serve two masters, for either he will hate the one and love the other, or he will be devoted to one and despise the other. Here's our help. To hate, here in 
Jesus' understanding is to despise. To love, here in this verse, is to vote to devote oneself to. So Jesus is saying that his people, his disciples, but true believers, are those who hate sin, self, Satan, and love, that is, they have a loyal devotion to the Savior, their master. Love is a strong, loyal devotion to the object of love. Back in John chapter 12, Jesus says, He who loves his life, he who has this strong, loyal devotion to himself, that one, Jesus says, will lose his life. Contrary-wise, he who hates his life in this world, he who despises himself in his sin, despises everything that is contrary to the ways and the will of God, he who hates his life in this world, that's the one who will keep it for eternal life. To give up that which I hold dear, that is, um, as an unsafe person, that, that which is displeasing to the Lord, to To love those things is to lose my life. I will lose my soul. Uh, But to hate those things, to despise those things, to run from those things, that's the one who will gain eternal life. Dying is living. Luke says it, or rather, Luke captures Jesus' words. Jesus said it, John chapter, or no, Luke chapter 9, verse 23. If anyone wishes to come after me, you want to be a disciple? Knock, knock. Jesus, may we have a word with you? Say the Greek man. If anyone wishes to come after me, he must deny himself and take up his cross daily and follow me. For whoever wishes to save his life will lose it. But whoever loses his life for my sake, he is the one who will save it. Years ago, uh, back in 1983, as a matter of fact, contemporary Christian artist uh, John Fisher wrote a song um, titled uh, nobody wants to die. In in my book, it's it's a classic. Lyrics go like this: 
You want to have wisdom without making mistakes. You want to have money without the work that it takes. You want to be loved, but you don't want the heartaches. Everyone wants to get to heaven, Lord, but nobody wants to die. Verse 2, you want to be forgiven without taking the blame. You want to eat forbidden fruit without leaving a stain. You want the glory, but you don't want the shame. Everyone wants to get to heaven, Lord. Nobody wants to die. Verse 3. You want to be a winner without taking a loss. You want to be a disciple without counting the cost? You want to follow Jesus, but you don't want to go to the cross. Everyone wants to get to heaven, Lord. Nobody wants to die. We want the easy life. We want discipleship light. And to these and himself, only the dying live. Verse 25. He who loves his life loses it. And he who hates his life in this world will keep it to life eternal. George Mueller was a godly influential man of 19th century London. He was once asked the secret of his life, and this was his reply. There was a day when I died died to George Mueller, his opinions, preferences, tastes, and will, died to the world, its approval or censure, died to the approval or blame even of brethren or friends. Only the dying live. Point number four. Verse 26, the serving follows. Jesus says, first part of verse 26, if anyone serves me, he must follow me. It's one thing to ask for a little bit of time with Jesus and pepper him with a few questions. It's quite the other. To follow him in whatever he says. If anyone serves him, he must follow him. This is a description of voluntary servitude. When a person rejects sin and self and all the mess that we get ourselves in, when we push all that away, we have a, we have a theological word for that, right? Repentance. When we push all of that away, when we eschew that whole lifestyle, we become 
the voluntary slave of Christ. Where we say, Lord, push me in the dirt. I want to die to myself, and I want to live for your glory, your purposes. I want to accomplish your will in this generation through my life. I belong to you. Paul wrote this to his young protege, Timothy. 2 Timothy chapter 3, verse 12. All who desire to live godly in Christ Jesus might be persecuted. Nuh-uh. That ain't how the text reads. Here's how it reads. All who desire to live godly in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. Don't be surprised when you are sidelined, canceled, abused, walked on, misunderstood, your words taken out of context. Don't be surprised that the unsaved world will treat you that way. Indeed, we should expect it. We should wonder if that doesn't happen, is, is something wrong? Am I not saying something I ought to be saying? Or doing something I ought to be doing? Those who are serving Christ follow him just as he followed the will of the Father the point of death. When we walk with Christ, we walk in the shadow of his cross. And we will suffer humiliation in doing so. Point number five. The honor comes. End of verse 26 in our text. Jesus says, where I am, there my servant will be also. You know, when we, when we trust Christ and, and are, are um, uh, beginning that relationship with him, there is nothing ever, ever that will take us out of that relationship. We will forever be in that relationship with Christ. Which is why uh, we, uh, we, we sometimes hear people talk about um, uh, heaven's, heaven starts right now. Because because my relationship with Christ is never going to skip a beat. Oh, I can um, dishonor him, and I can grieve the Holy Spirit, to be sure, and I can, I can throw mud on that relationship. But if I am a genuine believer, he is going to bring me back to himself, as painful as that might be. For that person who is a genuine believer in Christ, their relationship with him will never end. Where I am, Jesus says, there my servant will be also. Particularly when you're on the other side of the dirt. And you're buried in the dirt. 
If anyone serves me, Jesus says, the Father will honor him. By serving Christ, we are with Christ, connected with him. And the Father will honor us. We will be glorified with him. Now, now the converse also has to be said. Um, the unbelieving person will not be brought to glory. The unbelieving person will not enjoy the, the, the presence of God and the presence of Christ for all of eternity. The um, uh, Lutheran scholar R.C.H. Linsky uh, observed this, quote, The world is full of these blind lovers who love themselves to their undoing. Many will at last hate themselves bitterly for not having hated themselves properly in this life. Let me bring things to a conclusion by uh, using the words of uh, Charles Spurgeon, if I may. There are no crown wearers in heaven who were not cross bearers here below. Only those who die to themselves, to sin, only those who die will live. Oh, and the life that we have to live with the Lord goes beyond description. Let's pray. Father, words of thanks seem to be so shallow. So easily do they come off of our tongues. I, I pray that it is by the life that we make, the decisions that we make, the motivations in our soul that we will display our genuine thanks to you for what you have done for us in Christ. Father, may, may, may we live such a life that a day does not pass without us mentally and verbally articulating our joy and our thanksgiving at knowing Christ, being found in Christ, submitting to Christ, being his slave. Teach us to hate that which displeases you and distances us from you. Teach us to love with strong, loyal devotion. No one but the Lord Jesus. In whose name we pray.